Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. All right, so we're going to hear a reading from Genesis and then from Ephesians today as we prepare ourselves to enter the sermon time. Good morning, everybody. This is a reading from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 29. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River's shallow water. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. From Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 and 21 through 25. Conduct yourselves with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love and make an effort to preserve the unity of the spirit with the peace that ties you together. You are one body and one spirit, just as God also called you in one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Since you really listened to him and were taught how the truth is in Jesus, change the former way of life that was part of the person you once were, corrupted by deceitful desires. Instead, renew the thinking in your mind by the Spirit, and clothe yourself with the new person created according to God's image in justice and true holiness. So then, putting away falsehood, let, us, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbor, because we are parts of each other in the same body. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Katie. Thanks, Mike. All right. Well, we have been, over the last few months, entering into the full scope and sweep of God's big story, these five acts of the story. And we're going to continue that today, and just to make sure we're all on the same page, we've, we've looked at this as a drama that has five acts in it, and we're borrowing from the work of N.T. Wright and a handful of other scholars with this uh, who have engaged with various ways of telling this story. And so we, we talked about Genesis 1 and 2, creation, and uh, the, the first act in God's story. And then we jump to Revelation 21 and 22, recreation, how God will finish and recreate this story so that all things will be well in the end. For the last month or so, we've been sitting in Act 2, uh, which we are calling us, and it really is the wrestling of the falling self and the fall into sin. And we've been sitting with this idea about sin, Genesis 3 through 11 really tells the story at a theological level. What is sin? 
what in a culture that either rejects the existence of sin, the reality of sin, or a perhaps Christian culture where sin has become uh, maybe defined so narrowly that we need to re-engage our imaginations with how we think about it. How do we make sense of the reality of sin and its prominence in the scriptural story? This is our final week really sitting in Act 2 around sin. Next week, we're going to turn the page from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12 because a huge shift happens in that part of the story. We move into something really meaningful in how God is at work to give a promise to his creation uh, that will eventually lead to recreation. But before we can make that jump, we have one more aspect of the tragic consequences, the catastrophe of the fall to sin that I want to make sure we give its due. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. The Garden of Eden story tells us that sin is this result of taking instead of tending. It is the result of seizing instead of receiving. It is the result of grasping for what I fear will not be given to me. All that I fear will not be given by a loving God, the giver of every good and perfect gift, I then try to grab for myself, and sin is introduced to the world. And when sin is born, it begins manifesting itself in all kinds of tragic and destructive ways. Let's look at how James puts it in the book of James, uh, chapter 1. He says, when one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it, then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. And so we have this birthing imagery here that ultimately leads us to the reality of the power of sin and the power of death. And these are the great enemies of God's story. We're going to keep coming back to that idea because the story is going to ultimately have to be a showdown of sin and death versus love and resurrection, and we're going to see how God is at work in those places. But for now, this, this power of sin and death are the fracturing forces behind all that is broken in our world and in our hearts. And when we were here last, we traced the external fault lines of sin as it moves out of the Garden of Eden and it moves eastward. Remember, we talked about this idea of the eastward movement of sin throughout Genesis 3 through 11. What happens is every time we turn the page, we see sin is spreading. It's impacting humanity in an externally more and more destructive way. And so with Adam and Eve, what we had was an individual brokenness. And by the time we get to the next chapter, we have a familial or relational brokenness. By the time we get to the end of that chapter, we have in Lamech a generational and exponential brokenness. Cain's revenge is sevenfold. Lamex is 77-fold. It's getting bigger. It's getting more and more broken. And then we get to Noah in Genesis 6, and there's now a wholesale societal brokenness. And finally, it leads us to the Tower of Babel, where sin has gotten into the water of the world. And so there is a structural and systemic brokenness. And when we talk about sin, we have to make sense of both of those realities, the structural systemic reality and the individual reality. And even if you trace this down to our political discourse of the day, what we tend to find is that one party talks a lot about one of those things and rejects the existence of the other and vice versa. And we've got to make sense of both of these things if we are to move a world away from fracture and back toward wholeness. Okay, so that's the external fault line of sin, uh, how it impacts all of humanity. 
Today, what I want to do is trace the growth of sin through these same stories again, but this time looking not at sin's impact on humanity at large, but rather sin's impact on the internal, individual lens that impacts identity. How does sin not only fracture the world, but fracture my world? How does sin not only fracture the way I understand and answer the question, who are we, but also the way I answer the question, who am I? Who am I? Because this is where sin begins to break us, and then we pass that brokenness around, and eventually the whole world is broken. And so we're going to walk through Genesis 3 through 11 one more time. We're going to notice those things. I want to start with this, that because we have established over the last few weeks that there are two great forces in the world, two operative forces in the world, the force of sin, the force of love, there are therefore two ways of being in the world. There is a way of being that is increasingly animated and dominated by the force of sin, and there is a way of being that is increasingly animated and dominated by the force of of love. These are the two ways of being that are at the heart of Christian spirituality. So when we read the epistles, when we sit with the New Testament, what we're getting is a grappling with these new ways, this new way of being in the world due to Jesus and the old way of being in the world, that there are these different ways of showing up. And part of what it means to be all the saints, we'll talk about this more next week, but an important part of that is that we are the ones who bear witness to the possibility of another way of being in the world. There is a sense in which there's only one way to be human. And the church, the church's task, part of the promise of the church, is to show up and say, not so fast, there is a more whole way of living. And so we've got these two ways of being. They're at the heart of Christian spirituality. And what we find is that Paul grapples with these two ways of being with different words. He's, he's kind of trying on different ways of talking about this, but he's getting at the same reality each time. And so let's go through them real quick. Uh, in Romans 8, we have what he calls life according to the flesh versus life according to the spirit. And the life according to the flesh is death, the power of sin and death. Life according to the spirit is life and peace. Now, the way we live is based on the spirit, he says, not based on selfishness. And look at this line. The attitude that comes from selfishness is hostile to God. So these two ways of being are not compatible with one another. There is a significant gap between the two of them. Augustine puts it this way. Uh, He says that there can only be two basic loves the love of God unto the forgetfulness of self or the love of self unto the forgetfulness of God. These are the two ways of being. So there's life according to the flesh versus life according to the spirit. And then Paul tries out some different words in 2 Corinthians. He says that there's this outer nature and the outer nature is wasting away. But then there is an inner nature and it's being renewed day by day. In Colossians, he tries out some different language. He says that there is an old self which we have stripped off with its practices. We've clothed ourselves with a new self which is being renewed. There's that renewal language, that spiritual formation language again. And then in Ephesians 4, he gets this language that is what we're gonna use for the rest of the day. Change the former way of life that was part of the person you once were. Instead, clothe yourself with the new person created according to God's image. So then putting away falsehood, let us all speak the truth. And we get this idea of the true self and the false self. And uh, in some of our English translations, what we have here in both Ephesians and Colossians is stop lying to one another. 
But I think when we dig deeper, we get something a lot deeper than lies with our words. We get to this idea that the most destructive way I lie to you is not with the things I say, but when I show up falsely to you. When I show up as a version of myself that is not true, is not real, then I am actually destructively showing up to you because I'm not living in reality with you. It's not only an illusion, it's a delusion, right? When I show up in my false self to you, my broken, destructive self that does not treat God uh, seriously or does not have room for God or is afraid of God withholding, then I end up breaking fundamental parts of our relationship. Thomas Merton puts it this way, and this is a fascinating quote. He says, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the person I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. And we all feel this. I mean, I think if we're honest, we all recognize these two ways of being, and we all are some sort of combination, right? There's, there's no real way of being like, oh, I'm just going to fully live in my true self. It's never that simple. What we find, in fact, is that the false self is entrenched. It is deeply pervasive. Bob Mulholland is my favorite theologian who writes about the false self, and he, he, his definition for it is that it is that. It is this pervasive, deeply entrenched, self-referenced structure of being. And as a result, it shows up fearfully and protective and possessive and manipulative and destructive and self-promoting and indulgent and distinction-making Boy, we can trace all of the brokenness in our world down to a whole lot of false selves showing up falsely to each other. This is the power of sin in the world at an identity level. And, uh, and so it is sin that puts the self at the center of life. The challenge for us is that we can't just slip this off as a coat, right? Like, oh, I'm just not going to live in my false self anymore. It doesn't work. <laughs> right? Like, I think a lot of times we make it sound that transactional, that simple, but it just does not match our understanding of reality. The reality is that this is a lifelong process of becoming more and more rooted in the true self that is hidden with Christ in God. Let's walk through this scripturally. Uh, so, we see the false self show up in the Adam and Eve story before they've even taken a bite of the apple, right? There is already the tempter, there is already the serpent. There is already this whispering accusation. Satan in scripture literally means the accuser. So to live in a world in which there is a Satan, we are living in a world with constant accusation. And that accusation seems to whisper in our ear some version of you are not enough. You are not enough. You are not enough. You are at stake. You are not safe. And Adam and Eve hear these whispers and they are afraid that the whisper might be true. And if you're afraid that you are not enough, then what is the answer? It is to try to become more than who you really are. And now they have been primed for the temptation that is right to follow, which is eat this fruit and you'll become like God, right? Because I'm terrified I'm not enough, so I've gotta become more, I've gotta become like God. So they eat the fruit to try to become something they are not. Now the tragic irony here is they were already like God, for in the image of God he made them, right? They could not see the reality of their true identity, and there is something about sin 
that tells us we are inferior and that the only way out is to become superior. I must become more than I really am. And this is why Adam and Eve can't enjoy the uninterrupted presence of God that they had. They can't enjoy it because they've got to become God. They've got to become more than God. They've got to overtake God. This is why I feel deflated when I realize that I'm not the only special person in the world, right? Like, I want to be both totally normal and totally special at the same time. <laughs> uh, and, and the reality, I mean, I see this in my kids all the time. I tell them, one of them a compliment, and the other one goes, what about me? Right? We're hardwired into this reality where if there is love for someone else, then, then somehow the part of the love of the universe got sucked out of the room, and there's no longer enough for me. We're functioning under that brokenness. And so the false self then is always reactively oscillating between this fear of being unworthy, you are not enough, and this need to prove that I am the most worthy, so I will be like God. That's the brokenness, the fractured and fallen identity. And so I want to say, and this is important, that sin is living with myself as God. And that is at the, the heart of a fallen and fractured identity. Okay, so Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and what immediately happens? I was naked because I was, na- uh, or, sorry, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And we hide behind the fig leaves. We talked about this the first few weeks. And I think it's fascinating. We wrestled with that question where God's like, where are you, right? And I wonder if Thomas Merton's quote gives us some insight on this. Because maybe God can't find them because they are showing up as a false version of themselves, which God cannot know because they don't really exist, right? The false self is, is invisible <laughs> to a God who lives in reality. And he's like, what, what happened here? are you? And so I want to say that the false self is not inherently evil. It's just terrified. It's terrified of living in a world in which there is no benevolent God. Because if there is no benevolent God, all that's left is me. And so I hide under the fig leaves, and not only can God not find me there, I can't find God there. And if I can't find God there, then I am the only thing left, and therefore I must myself create a context for living. And my identity becomes utterly self-referenced, and I'm east of the garden of God now. I am on my own. I'm living under the lie that I am orphaned and that all that's left is myself. And so, of course, then I become selfish, because that's all I've got left. All right, one generation later, we meet Cain. Talk about the false self. Cain, his brother, here we are with the sibling thing again, his brother gets some affirmation from God, and what does Cain do? He kills his brother, right? (laughs) It's like parenting in a nutshell sometimes. Um, And I'm not saying that to make light of it, right? And so he's so threatened that he cannot live in a world where his brother might have the affirmation of God. And look at what happens. He goes away from the presence of the Lord. He settles in the land of Nod. He's moving east of Eden. And there's a fascinating hint here in the text because the land of Nod literally translates to the land of wandering. So he has left his home in the garden and he is now moving out of his homeland where he is going to be scattered to the winds. He is moving into this arid wilderness which is a far cry from the belovedness his story started in. Wandering, the land of Nod, is the place where I have become decentered from what is my home 
and therefore I have no firm center of identity because I'm not living where I was created to be. And so now I've got to search through the sands of this wilderness, right? I feel deserted because my life has become a desert. Um, and so we see Cain wrestling with that. And then we get to Cain's ancestors, and we come to the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, which is the culmination of this movement. And, uh, and as we get to the Tower of Babel, rem remember that the word Babel is a word play on what will eventually be known as Babylon, which is a place of exile. So when we are in Babel, we are in a place of exile that is decentered from where God desired our home to be. And we get these words in Genesis 5, or sorry, Genesis 11, 5. As they migrated, here we are from the east, they said to one another, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered. What do you do when you fear you have no home? You build a city. What do you do when you feel small? You're gonna build a tower and it's gonna not just be a tower, it's gonna be the biggest tower, right? What do you do when you feel orphaned? No family name. You make a name for yourself. What do you do when you feel fractured and false? You're terrified of being scattered to the winds. When McKenna was two, she went through this little phase of building towers. Um, if you go to the next one for me. Um, <laughs> sweet little McKenna. Uh, and she started grabbing everything and trying to build towers. No one instructed her that the big tomato can has to go on the bottom and the small can of jalapenos has to go on the top. <laughs> and so her tower is in imminent danger of falling, <laughs> right? And uh, we look at this and we go, goodness, McKenna, it's not that hard. <laughs> and yet, I think this is a fascinating picture of how I live. I'm grabbing whatever I can find in the raw materials of my life to build something stable and sustainable. And I'm grabbing what I've got. So for some of us, it's our talents, and for others, it's our intelligence, it's our beauty, it's our work ethic, it's our wisdom, it's our humor, it's that compliment that I got that time. But there's always this gut-level fear that it's only as stable as what it was built on. And so now I've gotta keep doing those things. I've gotta keep being wise. Because if you thought that I was wise, now I've got to say something wise in the next conversation. I've got to keep being funny. I've got to keep being beautiful. I've got to keep being smart. We all labor under this need to keep the tower intact, afraid it is going to topple at any moment. And the only way to do that is to grit our teeth in self-effort and to prop ourselves up in self-esteem that we might one day be self-actualized. But the whole thing is self-referenced self-dependent, and I wonder if I will ever build the, tall, the tower tall enough to get the, the verdict that says, that's enough, that's enough. Your tower's tall enough, it never comes. We can keep on building and building and building, it never comes. And no matter how tall I build it, I don't feel high enough, and so I've got to tear you there is another way to live, which is to build our life upon love. It is the firm foundation, right? And so here's the truth, and we'll start to wrap it up with this. 
that the false self needs to be crucified with Christ. We're going to see in time that it can be crucified with Christ, that a new self, which is the identity hidden with Christ and God, can increasingly rise. This is a journey. It's not a transaction. Uh, but to the degree my deep fear is met in God's perfect love, slowly but surely the false self becomes redundant. Right? And the reason I say redundant is because the false self is trying to do something that is utterly unnecessary if I live in a world with a benevolent God. I no longer have to prove myself. I've already been named by God. I no longer have to defend myself. I have a defender. I no longer have to be lovely. I'm called beloved. And so the false self can slowly slip into oblivion because God has already met all of its needs. So unless I am increasingly receiving a solid name from God, I'm going to spend my life trying to make one for myself. And I want to end today with the story of one more person in Genesis who sort of becomes the ultimate showdown around this issue, and it's the story of Jacob, right? Because so much of our life is this attempt to learn what is my name. And we come to Jacob, and he is born grasping at the heel of Esau, which is his older brother, Literally, that's what his name means, to grasp at the heel. So he's grasping out of the womb. He's afraid he will not have enough, and his brother is a threat, the other is a threat, and I've got to grasp at him. And that's what his name means, and it becomes his identity. And so when Esau is about to receive the blessing as the firstborn son, Jacob cons it by literally becoming a false self. Literally. He puts on his brother's <laughs> disguise, right? And he shows up as his brother to his nearsighted father who can't tell the difference. And Isaac asks him, who are you, my son? And he says, I'm Esau, right? He's telling the lie of the false self. And he receives his father's blessing, but he can't receive his father's blessing because he received it under a fake name that was not who he was. And just like his ancestor Cain, he spends most of the remaining years of his life on the run. He's hiding, he's conning, he's amassing. And one day, fateful day, he finds himself alone. And this is how it always happens, by the way. It's when we find ourselves alone that the deep reckoning happens. And let's see what happens. A man wrestles with him at daybreak. And the man sees that he will not prevail against Jacob. Say this about Jacob, he at least is a fighter. And so his hip is struck and it's put out of joint as he wrestles. But Jacob says, let me, or the, the man says, let me go, the day is breaking. But Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Clearly, the first blessing did not take. He's already received his father's blessing, and here he is, decades later, desperate for a blessing. And so he says to him, what is your name? And on the other side of all of the lying and the conning and the stealing and the struggling, he is able to look at this man and say, I am Jacob. And he tells the truth about himself. And I wonder who the mysterious figure is, right? Is it God? Is it Jacob? He names who he is, and he spends the rest of his life walking healed, but walking broken with a limp. Right? He gives up his grasping and his grasped. He gives up his release of grip, and he is formed. He receives this new name, and with it, the blessing he craved all along. And in the wounding, we are healed and given a new name. Um, as we come to this table, I want to share 
uh, a little story that's gonna set up our communion time. I was at this conference once in Michigan. I was going through a really particularly difficult time with some of the chronic pain that I was dealing with at that point in my life and uh, was showing up to this, this moment really broken. And I come into the communion line that's at the end of this three-day conference. And I get all the way up there, and the guy serving communion is someone I've never met who does not know me. And he looks at me in the eye, and he says, this is the body of Christ for you, Jordan. And I go, how on earth did he know my name? And I spent the next 15 minutes, hey, yeah, he knew my name. And then I looked down and I was wearing a name badge. <laughs> like, of course he knew my name, right? And yet, there was something powerful in the realization that, like, God doesn't need the name badge. And the creator of the entire universe knows my name. And so what we're going to do today as we move to the table, we're going to skip our confession and assurance, and we're going to come to this table, but we've got on the back table some name tags. And if you haven't already put one on, I'm going to ask everybody, I know many of your names, I know almost all of your names, but I'm going to ask you to put on a name tag as you get in line for communion. Because I want to greet you by name, and I want you to have named yourself so that the body and blood can meet you in your true name, and you can walk from here knowing that the creator of the universe knows your name. So let's come to this table, and then as you line up for communion, you can put on a name badge, um, and we'll, we'll meet Jesus here in the wrestling. And by the way, that's what Jacob's new name gets named, is Israel. God names his entire people Israel, and Israel means to wrestle with God, right? And so we enter into this reality where we are always wrestling in a mystery, and yet we are met there as well. So let's come to this table.